0: Now I have the privilege of welcoming back to the podium Dr. Zyrus. Uh, He is a dermatology residency director at Ohio State University. He runs a major contact dermatitis center and specializes in patients with difficult to treat dermatitis, paritis, or other cutaneous symptoms who are referred to him from dermatologists and allergists. He has other major interests in education, uh, specifically in finding ways to communicate concepts and information in ways that facilitate long-term retention and use of knowledge. So please help me in welcoming Dr. Zyrus. All right, so good morning. I am exceptionally impressed at how many people here are at 7, or how many people are here at 7.30 in the morning. Um, And I just want to tell you guys what a great Meeting this is so I went to the uh, reception last night at SeaWorld and it was just fantastic and I kept waiting to find out who like what pharmaceutical company had sponsored it and it it wasn't sponsored by a pharmaceutical company the SDPA just put it on themselves and that is just the this organization just continuously amazes me I mean the the AAD would have had 19 different sponsors that you were supposed to you know, talk to and listen to and everything else rather than just letting it be a focus on the DLI. And that was just in- incredible last night. Um, just really a, a great event. Um, but Alright, so today we are going to talk about itching uh, with a rash. Now this uh, could be probably a full day of lectures all by itself, but we are going to, I sort of took the highlights of several lectures and put them all together into uh, a single lecture and and we'll probably be going through it fairly quickly Um, at least quickly for me. I'll try and digress a little less than usual but let's um, go ahead and and get started. Ah, there we go. No. I don't know anything about melanoma. All right, good. So contact atopic and other frustrating dermatitis. I'm going to move that down just a little bit. All right, so first, my um, conflict of interest. I work with uh, Coria uh, regarding CeraVe. I work with Onset about Hyla Smart Practice makes the True Test uh, and other contact allergens and then the American Contact Dermatitis Society. So this is uh, my email. Um, I love getting emails from people with questions in general or questions about patients in specific. The way that I often put it is my favorite part with patients is coming up with a a diagnosis and plan. My least favorite part is having to see them back. And so emails are perfect. I love it. I get to come up with the diagnosis and plan, but I don't have to actually worry about the patient. So don't ever be um, hesitant to email me if you have a, a question about a patient in specific or anything in general about patch testing or dermatitis. So the role of patch testing. So this is one of the questions that I get pretty frequently. So ideally, every patient with suspected contact dermatitis ought to be patch tested, okay? Now, in the real world, that is absolutely ridiculous, okay? So that's sort of like saying, ideally, you would never drive more than 20 miles an hour in your car because then you would never get in an accident, and if you did, no one would get hurt. Um, but it's just never, ever, ever gonna happen. So in the real world, the day they walk into your office, you've gotta treat them, right? You can't, even if you're like, man, you need patch tested, you can't say, All right, we're gonna schedule you for patch testing. You're gonna come back in you know two or three weeks, then we'll get an answer. For those two or three weeks, just you know live with this. No, that's not the way that you have to deal with those patients. You've got to do something immediately. So you start with empiric treatment. Obviously, you're gonna give them some topicals, probably a topical steroid, but then also you really can make a good um, empiric recommendations as to what products they should change to what they should do in the meantime to try and get away from what you suspect they're allergic to and then you know I patch test uh, number one if they don't get better or number two if they get better but the things you had to tell them to do are not good long-term solutions so meaning you know they're on a topical steroid continuously and you can't get them off of it they're on such a restrictive regimen of personal care products that they just don't want to stick with it that kind of stuff okay so comparing the two systems and this is one of my Uh, sort of favorite topics people often ask me when should I do the true test when should I do more expensive testing so what are the advantages of the true test it's very convenient right you open the pack up you slap it on somebody Um, problem is there's a limited number of allergens propylene glycol betanes, and fragrance mix 2 those are three really big allergens Um, and really big allergens in a specific setting that we'll talk about in a minute the chamber systems on the other hand which is the fin chambers and, and so it, you know, these are little aluminum disks. And so I had never seen a fin chamber until I started doing patch testing. So they're, they're little aluminum disks, uh, about a quarter the size of a dime. They come on pieces of tape. So there's sort of a piece of tape that's about two to three inches wide and about five inches long, and it'll have 10 of them, and two of them in five rows. And somebody has to sit there and actually put a drop of each substance into each chamber. And we'll often test people to 100, 120 substances at a time. So my, my medical assistant who does that is um, a very unique individual. Right? So, but they're, so they're labor intensive and inconvenient. And, they're, and they cost a lot more. So whenever you're billing patch testing, you're billing by the number of units. And so the true test that's you know, 28 allergens is much less expensive than being tested with 100 allergens by me. Okay? So those are kind of the, the, the pros and cons of it. The way that I think about these two systems is the true test is very useful if you think you know what they're allergic to and you just want to confirm it, okay? So I think of the true test as the, very much the equivalent of biopsying a mole, where whenever you're looking at a mole, you usually know uh, this is not melanoma, but I just want to confirm that, make sure it's just a, a nevus, okay, or a dysplastic nevus. Or oh my God, this is a melanoma, and I need to get it off. But you usually know. Once in a while, you're like, ah, oh, I don't know. But, you know, usually you know, and you're just confirming it. The chamber system testing, I think of as biopsying a rash, where I'm not really sure what this is. I'm doing a biopsy to hope that I figure it out, and and that's the way these ought to be used. So the true test, if you see somebody you think they're allergic to, to it's very good for a few things. It's good for metals. So if you think they're allergic to nickel. Uh, cobalt chromate it's very good that's very good for rubber so if you think they're allergic to rubber gloves it's pretty good for topical antibacterials you know picking up neomycin Um, I would say and I don't think the new one has bacitracin on it yet I think the next one's gonna have bacitracin if they're allergic to neomycin assume they're allergic to bacitracin about half of them will be Um, but for those things it's very good it's not good for well it's, it's okay for preservatives so it's got formaldehyde, methylchlorosothiazolinone, uh, met- uh, and parabens, um, which are really the big preservative. It's pretty good for that. Um, it's really bad for fragrance, um, lathering agents, propylene glycol, and then a bunch of sort of goofy stuff, um, which in aggregate means that you're, all of that sort of goofy stuff added together means you're going to miss the diagnosis probably 50 to 75 percent of the time if you're using the true test. And just non-specific dermatitis. So meaning somebody who ends up being allergic to you know, a lot, number of different products, something like that. So fragrance, propylene glycol, being being the three big ones. And so if you think you know what they're allergic to, True Test is what I would use. If you don't think you know, then it makes a lot more sense to either, if you have chamber testing available in your practice, great, with the expanded panels. If you don't have it available in your practice, those are the people that it's worth sending to someone else. My when I calculate it out with the true test, with normal just they have dermatitis but you're not sure to what. So maybe face, scattered air, other places on their body, a little bit on their hands. About one to two percent of those people will get better if you true test them. If you use chamber testing, it's probably about twenty to thirty percent. Now the and and that's why a lot of people get a bad oh, patch testing's not that useful. I never I true test I test people all the time, I never find anything. With the true test about 2% of people I expect to get better in that setting and so it it really doesn't do a whole lot right so how I think about dermatitis in, in a busy clinic so what's it likely to be besides contact dermatitis question number one is you know what's my differential and how high is contact dermatitis on my differential number two if contact dermatitis is a serious possibility how serious of a possibility is it and then number three what is likely to come into contact with the area so what what product I don't care what allergen I want to know what product and what low allergenicity product can I just say okay Mrs. Smith you're gonna stop using your deodorant and switch to this other deodorant you're gonna stop using your hand moisturizer you're gonna stop using your shampoo you know what what do I want to switch based on on what I think about them right. so and then we're just gonna go through some different body areas that that are particularly common so eyelid dermatitis either you love it or you hate it and I love eyelid dermatitis because almost always I can get these people better so when you look at somebody with eyelid dermatitis your big differential is irritant dermatitis allergic contact dermatitis seborrhea slash psoriasis and then lichen simplex and you can generally make a good um, a good sort of guess as to which of these three which of those four it is, before you patch test them okay and we'll look at pictures of them if if though I really do think it's allergic contact what are the big culprits so um, I like to call on people during lectures and there's there's good rationale educationally behind that it makes the information stick better for everybody if if you're all nervous that you might get called on Um, and so let's see here in the orange t-shirt right here what do you think is the most common culprits in eyelid dermatitis so nail polish is what we're absolutely all taught Uh, is probably number one I've seen one case of nail polish causing eyelid dermatitis in the last seven years Um, give me, give me uh, me something else besides nail polish so fragrances so absolutely fragrances in general but the specific product the big one is shampoo so by far the most common cause of eyelid dermatitis both allergic and irritant is shampoo and conditioner Um, after that we definitely think we think about hand soap I think about hand moisturizers and Nail Cosmetics does make the list. Now, the, the difference with shampoo and conditioner versus hand soap and hand moisturizer, if it's both eyelids about the same, shampoo and conditioner. If it's one eyelid more than the other, then I'm more thinking hand soap and hand moisturizer, things that they're transferring to their eyes from their hands. Okay, so then looking at some pictures here, the key things whenever we look at these pictures, so whenever I'm thinking allergic contact dermatitis, what I'm expecting is a little bit more spread. So for it it to go beyond just the eyelid area, okay? Number one, so you know, you look at at this and it it certainly is going beyond just kind of the lid area right here. It spreads beyond the eyelid. Um, Another example, so this, you know, this crease, if it just involves kind of around this crease, then I am much more irritant dermatitis. But again, you look at her, it's spreading up, it's spreading out over to here, and it's got kind of these very sort of jagged borders, maybe a little bit indistinct in areas where exactly it stops. That's also very characteristic for allergic contact dermatitis, more so than the other entities. Uh, again, with this girl spreading you know, substantially beyond, just kind of the upper lid fold area. Also has it down here on her, on her neck. And so and this woman, again, spreading substantially on beyond. So in her, it was her soap. In her, it was her shampoo. In him, it was his hair dye. It was a rinse out product that he used at home. Uh, in her, it was her shampoo again. So asymmetrical eyelid dermatitis. You know, again, this eyelid clearly worse than that eyelid, this eyelid clearly worse than that eyelid. So these are people who are transferring allergen to to their eyelids with their hands. And then when we talk about irritant eyelid dermatitis, it's much more uh, limited to right around this fold. And so the reason that you get so much eyelid dermatitis is not in my mind because the eyelid skin is so thin. You have other places in your body that have very thin skin it's because that's an occluded area and so whenever you're rinsing something off whether it's face soap but more more so shampoo and conditioner your eyes are closed and so those folds are exposed but then you walk around the rest of the day with your eyes open 99.9 percent of the time and that creates an occluded area right here so right on that fold that's a nice deep occlusion that's trapping that allergen or irritant in your eyelid and so that's why Irritant and allergic contact dermatitis typically starts right on that fold. Another example irritant eyelid dermatitis, kind of again very much localized right here. Now she's got a little bit coming down here, but very much localized to right here in the upper lid. Um, Now, this eyelid seborrheic dermatitis, the big thing that, that you're looking for with eyelid seborrheic dermatitis is that it's not sort of the whole eyelid. So, right, so this, you know, it involves right here this outer part is pretty spared, it's got a nice sharp cutoff. You know if you transpose this onto this patient's chest I don't think any of us would have difficulty calling this petaloid seborrheic dermatitis. Um, but when you put it on the eyelids it's often a little bit confusing and it's, but it's these nice sharp borders that really should be your tip-off for seborrheic dermatitis of the eyelids. And then this lichen simplex so we, we all know about in kids who are atopic right you get the, the Morgan Denny lines, which are kind of these two accentuated folds right here. And that's because whenever you're a little kid and your eye is itchy from your atopy, you little kids go like this, right? And, but what do adults do whenever their eye is itchy? Do you, do you go like that? No, you go like this, right? And you rub your eye right there. And if you do that enough, you get lichen simplex, right? So lichen simplex and atopic eyelid dermatitis is to me is usually just that very medial canthus Sometimes it will be a little little higher than this, more up here, but it's really right in this area where you tend to get your lichen simplex uh, that's associated with atopic dermatitis. And so, empiric management. Somebody walks in, has what I suspect is allergic contact dermatitis of their eyelids. Um, What do I do? So, first thing I'll do is have them stop all of their shampoo, conditioner, and face soap, and I have them get California baby super sensitive shampoo and body wash. One of the great so this does not have any major allergen, so it doesn't have fragrance, it doesn't have a preservative uh that is a known contact allergen, it doesn't have betanes, it doesn't have anything that's a known allergen. The best part about it is it's extremely easy to get. So they walk out of your office, drive to Target, and it's available on the shelf at Target. Um, they don't have to order it, they don't have to look for it. You can tell them exactly where they're gonna be able to get it. Very easy to to get. What are the interesting so for both irritant and allergic contact dermatitis I like that next thing you ask them is do you wash your face before or after you rinse out your sh- your hair products and you ask them that most people will stop and think for a minute because they've never thought about it before and so they'll stop and think they'll maybe do, do this or do that okay most people rinse their hair stuff out after they've washed their face so they Put their, You know, the shampoo, you're supposed to put it in. If you read the back of the bottle, wait five minutes, then rinse it out. Same thing with the conditioner. So you put that in, you do everything else, then you rinse the hair stuff out. You want them to wash their face with a gentle cleanser after they've rinsed their hair stuff out. That's to make sure there's no residual shampoo or conditioner in the eyelid fold. Low allergenicity moisturizer and cleanser for face and hands. We'll talk about the ones that I just consider empirically low allergenicity. No nail cosmetics except for Revlon nail enamels. There is no tolu- toluene sulfonamide or tosylamide formaldehyde resin in there. Uh, and then low potency ointments. So one of the other things about eyelid dermatitis, it's, there was a study in the JAD this year. This has always been my belief, uh, but it's nice to have it confirmed. The risk using topical steroids on the eyelids is pretty close to zero. So if you're using, you know, clobetazole or vanos or, you know, betamethasone dipropionate, a class three steroid, yes. But if, once you hit about a class four or five steroid, it is really hard to cause glaucoma, cataracts, any of that stuff. There was a recent, this study that was recently in the JAD, people were using class I think four, either class three and four or class four and five steroids, most of the time, for four to five years, there wasn't a single case of cataracts or glaucoma. Now it's you've got to think of you've at least got to be vaguely aware of it. If I'm using topical steroids chronically on the eyelids, I'll tell people to see an eye doctor at least once a year. Um, you know just a regular optometry visit to get checked but the the risk is so low and and I'm totally comfortable letting people use about a class four steroid every other day so half the time and so that can mean every other day it can mean use it for a week stop for a week um, but half the time so 15 days out of the month whatever 15 days they want that to be I'm very comfortable having people use up to a class four steroid on their eyelids so then next next presentation. So that was very much sort of isolated eyelid dermatitis. Next presentation peripheral face. So preauricular sort of in front of the ear, maybe behind the ear, then coming down onto the jawline and onto the lateral neck but relatively sparing the central face, right? So whenever you see that, your big differential it, your big differential is actually just contact derm. There's not a lot else that gives you that pattern. But the differential you, you at least want to vaguely think about, seborrheic dermatitis, atopic dermatitis, and dermatitis WNGR. Anybody know what WNGR is? With no good reason. Right, so just, you got dermatitis and we're not going to figure out why, okay? So the likely culprits if it's uh, a Rentsoff pattern here. Um, let's see here, guy in the front row in the gray shirt. What do you think? Biggest, biggest potential culprit. What products so fragrance not allergen products so moisturizer makeup shampoo conditioner uh, what do you think it is auricular, kind of this pattern so absolutely shampoo is number one so shampoo and conditioner just like eyelid dermatitis this is basically a different presentation of eyelid uh, of the same allergen, and you'll often see them together. They'll often have eyelid dermatitis and this kind of rinse off pattern. Uh, And so this was a girl, uh, most of these are all gonna be shampoo. This was parabens in her shampoo. These two, I believe it was fragrance in their shampoo. These two, it was betaine in their shampoo. And so whenever I see these people with this rinse off pattern, dermatitis sort of in this area, um, preauricular area, again, the California baby super sensitive shampoo and body wash and conditioner and then appropriate topical therapy with either a steroid, uh, tacrolimus, pomecrolimus, any of those. So then next, lip dermatitis. So your big differential with lips, Um, irritant dermatitis slash cosmetic addiction and lip licking. The big thing here that you want to look at is does it violate the vermilion border? And and I'll show you this in, in a few of these pictures, but likely culprits if it's allergic contact dermatitis. So right here. So to, absolutely great. Most people, the first thing they go to is is lip cosmetics, lip stuff, but toothpaste is number one. Um, it, it's both toothpaste and lip balms and cosmetics, and you can usually tell apart which one it's going to be. So what? So first, this is not contact dermatitis. All right. So these are people. And this is a relatively common thing I see for patch testing. Tends to be women between the ages of about 25 and 55 uh, who complain of their lips burning and being puffy and swollen. Now, when I look at their lips, it doesn't particularly look puffy and swollen to me, but I don't know these, you know, I, I didn't see them eight months ago before their lips got puffy and swollen, so I, I take their word for it that it's happening. But this looks relatively normal to me. Um, but the, the thing that you want to really pay attention to, the vermilion border here is nice and sharp, just like it's supposed to be, right? You've got a nice, sharp vermilion. These people will often tell me, and I can maybe see it here, that they get little bumps or even little vesicles along the vermilion. And in these people, I never find anything as a contact allergen. I have them switch to toothpaste that is non-mint flavored. So I'll have them get, Tom's of Maine uh, makes an orange mango toothpaste that's not bad. Um, and I'll have them use, usually they've, they've tried using just straight petrolatum on their lips. I'll have them switch to using a product called Lansinoh, L-A-N-S-I-N-O-H. It is in the baby aisle it's for nipple dermatitis whenever women are breastfeeding and I think of this maybe in that same spectrum of things it's a modified mucous membrane just like the areola is but so this is much more what contact dermatitis of the lips looks like and so the, what I want you to take away here you know the vermilion border should be about right there and really his vermilion border is completely gone he has got a little patch off to one side and this this is the absolute classic presentation for toothpaste allergy Right, so your toothpaste tends to run down a little bit more so the bottom lip's worse than the top lip. And it tends to be a little patch on one side because where, as, where the toothpaste is, is getting there as you're using your toothbrush going in and out. Okay? A lot of times you don't see that little patch on the side, but you, you do on a, on a not infrequent basis. But the lower lip is typically worse than the upper. This is him at his one month follow-up, you can he's, you know th- there's still a lot of erythema here but you can really see where his his vermilion border has been re-established. This patch has gotten a lot better as well. So this woman was allergic to her lip cosmetic. Uh, It was actually her lipstick in this case. Uh, This woman was allergic to the lanolin in the aquaphor she was using on her lips. And and again, really what you wanna see here is the vermilion border is, is completely gone, completely been violated by the dermatitis. This girl also allergic to the lanolin in her aquaphor Uh, Let's see here, so the management that that I use whenever I'm dealing with allergic contact dermatitis uh, of the lips, so use only petroleum jelly. Now what you have to avoid very specifically is Vaseline lip therapy advanced formula. So this is the Vaseline in the little tubes that are designed to be carried around with you to be used, and it's in a little, you know, the tube has a little hole on top and it's made for putting Vaseline on your lips. It says right on the back, active ingredient, white petrolatum 100%. Sounds to me like that's perfect, but then in little print down at the bottom, it says inactive ingredient flavor. And I've had several patients be allergic to this product, uh, to the flavor in it. And so you want to make sure they're just using straight petroleum jelly, okay, Um, out of the jar, not Vaseline Baby, because Vaseline Baby has a little bit of fragrance in it as well. You just want plain petroleum jelly, plain Vaseline. For the cosmetic addiction people, the, quote, burning lips or puffy lip syndrome, um, Lanceno uh, and I will often use a high-potency steroid two days a week. So I'll use something like clobetasol or dexamethasone, you know, Thursday and Friday, uh, just two days a week so that I'm not going to be worried about giving them a steroid acne uh, or something like that. So two days a week I'm very comfortable using a high-potency steroid. So then feet. Your main differential diagnosis, if it's the dorsal foot, is irritant dermatitis from socks and sweating. If it's the plantar, if it's the plantar foot, Much bigger differential, just plain keratoderma, psoriasis, tinea, um, lots of stuff. But the dorsal foot is really what, whenever you see a dorsal foot rash, I want you to think irritant or allergic, okay? And you ask them, so first question is, does it itch? Oh, yeah, oh, my God, itches like crazy. Next question, is it more irritated or is it more itchy? And so what I'll tell patients is, you know, if I give you a, a scale of 10, it's purely itchy, One, it's purely irritated. Where would you put it on that scale, 50-50, 75-25, whatever? Patients can distinguish irritated from itchy, whenever you ask them to make that distinction. If they say it's more irritated, then it's much more likely that it is irritant dermatitis. If they say that it's itchy, it's much more likely that it's allergic dermatitis. And that goes for allergic contact dermatitis, irritant contact dermatitis, anywhere on the body, not just the foot. But so, the, the, if it's the dorsal foot, it's the same story every time. So, it's typically a high school athlete or maybe somebody who's a recreational athlete, but usually high school athletes or people who work for, who are sort of um, construction jobs, something like that, where they wear work boots all day uh, and have very sweaty feet. And so, the irritant is sweat and the inside of rough cotton socks. So, it's a frictional uh, slash. Um, maceration dermatitis initially so that happens patients assume everything on the feet is tinea so they go to the drugstore and get uh, an antifungal medication that doesn't help then they assume it must be an infection so they go to the drugstore and get Neosporin and put that on and it doesn't help then they assume it must be poison ivy that they somehow got on their foot so they go and buy Aid and put that on then when it still doesn't get better they go to see their primary care doc who believes that everything responds to lotrazone, and so they get lotrazone, and it still doesn't get better, and then they come to see you. And so the question is, at that point, is it still the original irritant, or have they become allergic to one of those things that they've used to try and treat it? And the thing that's unique about feet really goes back to shoes. So what's unique about shoes compared to everything else that you wear directly against your skin? What do you never do to a pair of shoes? You never wash your shoes. And so once you put Neosporin on your foot and then put your shoe on or put your slipper on, you have Neosporin in your shoe or slipper permanently. So six months later, when you put that shoe or that slipper on, you're still getting exposure to the Neosporin. Okay, So it, it tends to be people who are athletes or who wear work boots because those are things very tight and lots of sweat and sweat being held in against the foot. So this guy, it was Neosporin. This guy it was Neosporin. Uh, This individual, now you can get allergic contact dermatitis on the soles of the feet, absolutely. It will often spare the arch as opposed to um, either tinea or psoriasis, both of which psoriasis may be a little more likely to spare the arch compared to tinea, but both often will involve it. It will often spare the arch. The main way I diagnose allergy to feet, and so this by the way was allergy to Crocs, and so normally whenever I suspect allergic contact dermatitis, to shoes um, if it's the shoe itself I'll recommend wearing Crocs I've seen the three people who are allergic to I believe ethylene vinyl acetate EVA which is what most of that type of footwear is made out of um, it's sort of a a, pla- a spongy plastic but people can become allergic to it the way that you diagnose this is you cut pieces of their shoes up and so that's the main thing that I, I would take away for foot dermatitis in general um, it's very useful to cut a small piece of their shoe and so you cut a piece that's where the dermatitis is. So if it's on the dorsal foot, if you cut a small piece out of the tongue. This is usually an athletic shoe or a work boot. And so you can, you can cut a small piece without totally ruining it. Um, or you cut a small piece out of the insole. Um, and usually what I try and do is get a piece about a half an inch to an inch square. Um, and then you just put it, you know, I get it damp with tap water and tape it to them. Um, if, that's the, if that's the only thing you do whenever for patch testing for feet, you'll do better than if you're doing the true test or even if you're doing a comprehensive panel. Because it, it's going to pick up whatever's in their shoe innately, the glues, the dyes, it's going to pick up whatever they've put on their foot. Um, so about a one-inch square, I'll tape it to somewhere that's a little more sensitive than their back, maybe like their forearm right here. Try and get them to keep it on for two days and take it off, see if they get a reaction at that site. Uh, This one was obviously the leather in her sandals. It's pretty rare for me to see allergy to leather anymore. It's been probably three or four years since I've had a case of leather allergy. I think they're tanning a little bit differently now. That's the only explanation I I have um, for why I'm not seeing people who are chromate allergic come in with reactions from leather. Uh, And then this guy, it was the glue in his hip waders. So he was a duck hunter and he would come in every fall with this it took a couple years for me to put to, for me and him to put together it was fall we then figured out that it was his hip waders that were the big trigger for him and so in shoes in general and footwear there's a lot of glue and so in him it was the glues but so the the how do I manage these people I dress hyperhidrosis if their feet don't sweat the allergens won't get released so I try to address the hyperhidrosis if it's dorsal foot I'll have them stop wearing all of their shoes this is much easier with men um, than it is with women right so men Stop wearing all your shoes, you're going to buy two, two new pairs of shoes, one pair that's you know um, either your work boot or your sneakers, a second pair that's kind of your casual shoe for you know, whenever you're going to work or going to church or doing whatever, um, and you're going to wear only those two pairs for the next six weeks. That gets rid of all of the stuff that they've put on their foot. Um, it's a little harder to do that with women, obviously, but if they're miserable enough, they'll do it. On the other hand, this the vast majority of this dorsal foot is men because it's, it tends to be um, high school athletes that are wearing their shoes for hours and hours at a time. So like football players during two-a-days in the summer, whenever they're at practice for eight hours a day in 90-degree heat, that'll be the kind of time that it starts. Um, or people who are working you know, as a carpenter or as a construction worker. So stop wearing other shoes, um, use only dexamethasone ointment, and then smooth sock liners. So, this you want like a, a thin nylon sock. So, a men's dress sock is a good example of, of something really easy. And then you put your cotton sock over that so that the rough cotton sock is rubbing on the smooth nylon sock, not rubbing on their foot. All right, so a a, 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 so, a smooth nylon sock under their cotton sock, okay, for your athletes and for your uh, construction worker types. And then for their plantar foot, if I'm worried about contact derm, they can replace their insoles with cork or felt for most people it's also very okay to use Dr. Scholl's gel insoles those are much easier to find than cork or felt right so you get if you want to do cork you go buy a cork board and then you get a razor blade and you cut stuff out in the shape of a shoe Um, felt you kind of do the same thing it's a lot easier to go by Dr. Scholl's gel insoles and those for the vast majority of patients are totally fine and, and really have very little allergenicity All right, so then your hands main differential here is a whole lecture in itself but the likely culprits never see allergic contact dermatitis of the hands, gloves, hand soaps, moisturizers, and over-the-counter prescription topicals, then there's one unusual one. And so don't forget here, we're talking about if it's just your hands. So if it's your hands and your face, your hands and Apache dermatitis, your hands and your butt, your hands and anywhere, that is a, quote, hand and dermatitis, and that's almost always contact dermatitis, because most stuff that you're putting anywhere else, how are you getting it there, you're putting it on with your hands right but if you have just a hand dermatitis the one thing that that doesn't really fit for are hair styling products and so if you have just an isolated palmar dermatitis think about mousses and gels so stuff that you're gonna people put in their hand rub their hands together put it in their hair and then wash their hands so it never touches their skin anywhere else except for the palms and so that's the one thing that's kind of an odd one to think about for hand dermatitis so this guy was a he worked in a steel mill um, and so we thought, of course, it was some of the chemicals, some of the anti-corrosion agents, something like that. Turned out to be the rubber gloves he wore whenever he did the dishes at home. Uh, this woman, so this is, is a nice hand and dermatitis. She worked, so she was allergic to chloroxylenol. Chloroxylenol is an antibacterial in a lot of soaps in public restrooms, McDonald's, Burger King, uh, office buildings, all that kind of stuff. Her job was to water plants uh, at night. And so we tested her. She was allergic to chlorozyl and I'm telling her it's the, it's the soap in the buildings that's causing the problem whenever you wash your hands. And so her answer, her question was, well, then why am I getting it here and here? I'm not washing those areas with the soap. And so she's not believing me at all. And I'm, st- and I'm not, you know, I'm not budging either. I'm like, no, it's, it's the soap. In the-. And finally she says, it, how can it be the soap? How would this, you know, I'm not washing that area. I'm sure that you don't know what you're talking about. And, of course, what was happening was that after she would wash her hands, she would do this on a regular basis. And so that was the transfer from her hands to her antecubital fossa. Right, so this guy was allergic to his moisturizer. Uh, Now, he also had a rash on his rear end. And so, and one hand worse than the other, so this wasn't his primary hand. Now, he came in primarily for the hand dermatitis. The rash on his rear end was sort of a secondary. Oh, I also happen to have a rash there. It's not so bad. The moisturizer he was putting on his rear end, he was mainly putting it on with his right hand. Um, and so that's why the, the right hand here is worse than the left. This guy came in with a scalp dermatitis. I gave him uh, one of the Clobetasol foams and he came back with a uh, scalp dermatitis about the same but now with a hand dermatitis. And so this was an example of the equivalent of a moose um, that, you know, we were having him put in his hand and put on his scalp. Not much of it was getting to his actual scalp dermatitis. But I gave him a nice case of contact dermatitis to propylene glycol uh, on, on his hands. Uh, and this, I, always, I can never remember what this person was. It was occupational. I think this person worked in a dental lab uh, and it was a goofy allergy to one of the chemicals in the dental lab. But the, the thing that I do want you to kind of take away here, when, it, you know, when you look at all these pictures, I'm generally showing you pictures of everybody's palm. Now some of them it's the back of the hand as well my experience very much the palm is much more likely to get allergic contact dermatitis the dorsal hand is in between the fingers is much more likely to get irritant it is certainly not hundred percent you can see irritant dermatitis on the palms you can see allergic contact dermatitis on the back of the hand but almost never do you see irritant dermatitis that's just on the palms where it doesn't involve the back of the hands also so if it's just the palms you're much more thinking allergic contact dermatitis so low allergenicity soap, moisturizer, I, I like to use a lot of desoxymethasone ointment. It's the only steroid that is totally non-allergenic. So the, you cannot be allergic, well you can, but it's incredibly rare to be allergic to, to the active ingredient. Um, you can be allergic, and I see plenty of people allergic to the active ingredients in all other steroids. And this, the only, so it's a class C topical steroid. The only other class C for allergenicity is clocortolone. Uh, which is cloderm, but there are some allergens in the cloderm vehicle. There are no allergens in this oxymetazone ointment. Consider their hair products and then gloves. The gloves that I want you to know about. Um, So just your healthcare workers uh, with a hand dermatitis assume it's the soap that they're using or the gloves. The gloves is an easy fix even without patch testing. These are the are the four gloves that you need to know. So index free so that's made by a company called BEST, B-E-S-T Gloves. Um, and then Microtouch Nitro Free and Dermaprene Ultra, those are both made by Ansel, A-N-S-E-L-L. And those are two of the major glove manufacturers. People aren't going to have any trouble uh, having their their workplace find them. You just can Google uh, either the glove, glove names or the company names. Uh, no rubber allergens in any of these gloves, OK? so. And those are very good. Uh, the Dermaprene Ultra is sterile, so that's for your scrub nurses, uh, your surgeons, anybody who needs to do sterile stuff. And then vinyl gloves uh, really are very, very low allergenicity. It does happen, but it's very rare. But they're just not very good gloves. So the biggest problem with nitrile gloves you don't have good tactile sensation. You don't have very good protection uh, against uh, biological fluids. So then this is another pattern of dermatitis that I, I really enjoy. Uh, so really kind of the inner arm um, a little bit here on the chest and then here on the on the lower extremities Um, anybody have And this is a relatively random one but one that's worth knowing about and it can just be widespread kind of nonspecific. but this is relatively specific when I see inner arm like this anybody got anybody have an idea so Soap, textiles, kind of the normal stuff. Anytime you see somebody with a widespread dermatitis, especially if it involves their inner arms, ask them if they have a hot tub. So hot tub allergy is much more common than I would have ever imagined. So I diagnosed my first case of this two or three years ago uh, because I had a patient who told me he was allergic to his hot tub and told me he was allergic to the potassium proxy monosulfate shock treatment. Um, And I said, I'm an expert in contact dermatitis, and I've never heard of that, so you obviously are crazy. Um, However, as I've said, I I humor all of my patients, and so uh, we tested him to a persulfate, ammonium persulfate, and he was strongly allergic, and we had him start to avoid uh, pools and hot tubs that were treated with that shock treatment, and he got better. And so then I started asking all of my widespread dermatitis patients, do you get in a hot tub? Um, and over the last three years, I've had a, probably 20 patients who they were allergic to their hot tubs. And so the the patch test agent is ammonium persulfate, which is usually used for hair bleaching, but even which is a relatively uncommon allergen. But easier, just tell them not to get in their hot tub for eight weeks. And if they get better, then you tell them, OK, get in your hot tub again. if they get in their hot tub and then they break out that day or the next day, you've confirmed it's hot tub allergy. You can be 100% sure that it's potassium proxy monosulfate, that it's their shock treatment. Tell them they need to go to their spa dealer and get a shock treatment that is not potassium proxy monosulfate based. Uh, and, then they'll, and then they'll get better. And it's, it's a lot more common than, than I ever would have imagined. So if I've seen 20 people in the last several years, and I get probably one email every two weeks, yes? So potassium, uh, peroxy, P-E-R-O-X-Y, mono, M-O-N-O, sulfate, S-U-L-F-A-T-E. No problem. Sorry. I, I, yes, I, I do tend to talk fast whenever I'm up here. Um, so it's more common than you would think. I probably get an email once every two weeks from somewhere around the country that um, it, from somebody who's allergic to their hot tub, found one of the articles that I've talked about this in uh, online and figured out that that's what was doing and quote changed their life. I never knew that hot tubs were that. I, like, when, I, when somebody says they have a hot tub in my mind I'm always hearing bow chicka wow wow. <laughs> but I, it's it's you're just shocking how many people have them. Um, Alright so next thing. Whenever you see this so these kind of little red itchy bumps right we all hate seeing little red itchy bumps because you're usually not going to figure out what it is and you're not going to get them better other than with prednisone or am Kenalog. But when you see anything affecting kind of the extensor elbows, and this is him after we put him on uh, appropriate therapy. When you see things affecting the extensor elbows, and especially if it's ex- affecting the extensor elbows and the palms or soles. Uh, and again, extensor elbows. Extensor elbows. Uh, so we talked about the hot tub, low nickel diet. So itchy bumps on the elbows um, is, a, is a very good predictor of somebody having their dermatitis being due to nickel in their diet. Um, and I have a, a low-nickel diet handout that I, that's pretty simple to follow that I, that I use with patients. I've got to use it for about six to eight weeks. Um, and if they don't get better, then fine. Uh, I stop it. But about half of the people who have itchy bumps on their elbows will get better on a low-nickel diet, has been my experience. Um, now, you've got to patch test them, right? So I do make sure that it's that they're allergic to nickel. You can't just ask if you have problems with earrings, belt buckles, you've got to actually patch test them um, because a lot of people don't have problems with earrings or belt buckles, but still will be nickel allergic. Um, you put them on a low nickel diet, six to eight weeks, if it works, great, then you can talk with them more about it. But if you, if you email me, I'll send you my actual handout that I give them. The, the big things, oatmeal, legumes, so legumes mean peanuts, beans, Uh, And especially soybeans, uh, Chinese food, tofu, edamama, um, whole grain stuff, so cereals uh, tend to be a problem. And then dark chocolate, canned goods, and stainless steel pots and pans. Um, Those are the big things that really drive it. And on my handout, I have those underlined. And in general, if I just tell people avoid those things, you don't have to avoid all the other stuff. Avoid just that stuff. That will reduce their nickel intake by about 90%. Um, but, itchy papules on the elbows, I absolutely want you to think about dietary nickel. So then, uh, empiric management, widespread allergic contact derm, uh, lower allergenicity moisturizer, cleanser, shampoo, and topical steroid, and then start adding a cup of nonfat powdered milk to the laundry. I love telling patients that because I could, I could go into, you know, a discourse about the pathophysiology of pemphigus and antibodies and the immune system and everything else, and the patients are like, uh-huh, uh-huh, as soon as I'm like, add a cup of nonfat powdered milk to your laundry, they like, what? It's, that's, what that's so interesting. Why is that going to help? Um, you know, it's an old wives tale. They love it. So the, but it, it does remove formaldehyde um, from clothing. And so most cotton clothing is treated with um, resins to make it wrinkle resistant, shrink resistant, stain resistant. Gov- the government just did a um, uh, trial on this and about 5% of the clothing sold in the United States has detectable levels of formaldehyde. Um, 5% is a pretty big number. So right, how many people in here have more than 20 items of clothing? Everybody, right? We all have several hundred I will bet. So you've, if you've got several hundred, you've got probably 10 things that have levels of formaldehyde in it that would be enough to potentially cause allergic contact dermatitis if you're formaldehyde allergic. So the best thing I have found for this is adding a cup of non-fat powdered milk uh, along with the detergent. And that does help to remove some of that free formaldehyde. Now, the formaldehyde reaccumulates between washing, so they've got to do this every time. Also, with their sheets and pillowcases. The biggest culprits are men's dress shirts and sheets and pillowcases. So, then this should be in your, uh, in your handout uh, low allergenicity stuff, uh, cleansers, moisturizers, um, and the topical steroids, dezoxymedazone ointment and gel. And tachro- I know tacrolimus is not really a steroid but there's nothing in any of these that anybody should be allergic to. All incredibly rare for anybody to be allergic to any of these three. Uh, Generally safe products for makeup, I like the Bare Minerals powders. Um, Not their liquid stuff. Their liquid stuff is no better than anybody else's. It is incredibly rare for me to see somebody who's allergic to their makeup. Now, that may be referral bias because the first thing women do when they get a facial dermatitis is change all their makeup. And so if they get better, they're not coming to see me. So it may be referral bias, but the, the bare minerals powders are very good. All and Clinique are pretty good in terms of their allergenicity as well. Um, Grecian formula 16, if they really want, really want to color their hair, this will make your hair sort of black. It's based on lead acetate, so patients have asked me, well, what if my grandkids eat my hair? Um, I'm kind of like, you've got bigger problems <laughs> if your grandkids are going to be eating your hair. Um, but it's the only Grecian formula that doesn't have paraphenylene diamine. All the other ones have paraphenylene diamine. Revlon nail enamels and then certain dry antiperspirant. Certain dry antiperspirant doesn't have any allergens in it, but you've got to have them put it on at night. Um, first, it works better as an antiperspirant if you put it on at night. Second, um, if you put it on in the morning, it's going it's to bleach the underarm areas of your clothing. Um, and so if you do certain dry, you want to do it at night before you go to bed. All right, so then what do you do with positive results? Um, It's really important to determine relevance because the more allergens you tell them about, the fewer that they're going to avoid. It just becomes information overload where they're just kind of, uh, you know, they told me 12 things, I can't remember any of them. Even if you tell them two, that's a lot. Um, If you can narrow it down to one thing that they're allergic to that you want them to avoid, that's by far the best. Some people it is more than one thing. I get people who are allergic to formaldehyde and fragrance and other stuff. But you try and narrow it down as much as you can. Um, Watching video is much more effective than face-to-face education. Um, It's been shown in two studies now, one with atopic dermatitis, one with biopsies, that if you have them watch a video versus you sit in front of them and tell them the exact same thing that's on the video, they will retain the information from the video much better than if they sit face-to-face with you. And it's really thought to be because we're very programmed to be that way from watching TV, right? So you watch TV, you're in a very receptive mode, when the provider is sitting in front of you people are really sort of anxious and stressed um, and they are thinking what questions do I want to ask what do I got I gotta get this I gotta they're not getting what you're saying but if you have them watch a video they are and so this website um, the people who make um, the true test and the pet test allergens um, I worked with them to develop this because I had such success with videos I made myself And so now this website, mypatchlink.com. Anytime you patch test somebody and they're allergic and they do have a positive patch test, this is what you should do. All right, if you have computers in your office, go to this website, have them watch the video right there. If you want to, you can watch the video with them. They're actually very good in terms of being very clinically relevant and relatively short. Most of them are three to five minutes long. Uh, And then there's a handout that goes along with the video. And they're really good handouts. Um, so you can print the handout and then they can go home and watch the video again if they want. They can have their husband watch the video, their wife watch the video, their parents, their kids, anybody they want, they can have watch the video as well. It is incredibly useful and it's, it's one of the most practical things that you'll take away from, from this talk uh, is that website, okay. So avoid information overload, um, only tell them about relevant allergens things, tell them what to use rather than what to avoid um, and repeated exposure via, via, the, via the videos. Okay, so what they can use, but you also have to tell them if you're going to tell them what they can use, you've got to remind them that that means they can't use anything else. So if you just say use this shampoo, I've had many patients who go home, get that shampoo, and then use it every other day and continue to use their old shampoo every other day. You've got to tell them only use this, don't use anything else. And so uh, and American Contact Dermatitis Society's uh, CAMP website, the Contact Allergy Management Program, uh, your, your doc has got to be a member of the American Contact Derm Society to get access to this. It costs about 250 bucks um, a year, but you get access to CAMP, which you put in what they're allergic to. So there are check boxes for all of the allergens. You check off what they're allergic to, and then it gives you a list of products that are safe for the patient to use, that do not have any other allergens in it. It's really useful if you're doing much patch testing. So then atopic dermatitis, Just and then very briefly here, so the outside-in paradigm, everybody has barrier dysfunction. It's the primary etiology. That's the primary thing. They have to have an immune system that's genetically permissive of atopic dermatitis. That's what determines which barrier dysfunction people get atopic dermatitis and which ones don't. So inflammation leads to further worsening of the barrier. Filagrin is the main thing that's been worked out so far, very well worked out. But ceramide deficiency is also a genetic, uh, a genetic issue. So then irritants and water are the main things with mild to moderate atopic derms. So we avoid water. We minimize transepidermal water loss by repairing. So we avoid irritants, and re- we try and repair the barrier. Um, proteins penetrating through the adrenal corneum is the major cause of severe disease. So with this, proteases, they cause itching inflammation via the protease-activated receptor, and they degrade the barrier. Super antigens cause inflammation, and then allergens. And so, complicated slide here, which should be in your handout, but it, it goes through what's the pathophysiology of these uh, staph super superantigens and these environmental protease penetrating your, your disruptive barrier. And again, the protease is making the barrier worse. So uh, with these outside ramifications, the endo- so we have endogenous protease inhibitors in our skin. We all have a, a specific immune system. That's different. So, when I see these people, these adult atopics, I subtype them into a category airborne protein, staph, superantigen, or malassezia allergy. About 70% of patients, you can categorize adult atopics into one of those. And so, I give them a ceramide containing topical, and I want it to be enough for them to use as a moisturizer. So, the ceramide containing topicals uh, Aveno Eczema Care contains ceramides, um, Cetaphil Restoraderm contains ceramides, and CeraVe contains ceramides. I like, Cera, my, I like CeraVe by far the best. I also um, work a lot with Coria about CeraVe. Um, now that's because I went to them and told them how, much I, how fabulous I think it is, but certainly I have a conflict of interest. Um, exceptionally effective as preventatives, but not very effective as actives. So they're not that great to get um, dermatitis better, but they're very good to keep it better once you get it better. This is just looking at, and again this is in your, in your thing, the cheapest of the stuff that's out there is also CeraVe. Um, It's one of the reasons that that I like it. Other benefits, it really helps with stress. But the bigger thing here is topical steroids make your barrier worse. And so this is looking at at betamethasone and tacrolimus. They both got the barrier a lot better because they got the inflammation better. But then the betamethasone was causing a barrier repair problem. And so the barrier innately gets worse again whenever you stop it. This is why it's so hard to get them off of the steroids. So this slide is also one that I like. This is showing if you use clobetazole plus a placebo, your barrier, so this is basically nothing. So this is just two placebo, placebo. You get barrier repair at about this rate, over 24 hours, about 75%. If you use clobetazole for three days, you cut barrier repair by about, 40 to about 50%, 60%. If you use a physiologic lipid, you completely reverse what clobetazole has done to the barrier. And so that's why, for practical barrier repair, this is another really practical thing. 50 mLs of clobetazole into a 16-ounce jar of CeraVe. I talked about adding uh, camphophenic to this as well uh, whenever I talked about it yesterday. This is what I'll use if I'm treating just straight-atopic dermatitis. It's about a class 3 steroid. I use betamethasone dipropionate instead uh, if it is a, uh, if I went lower than class 3. Medicated moisturizer to everywhere you have dermatitis. Um, regular moisturizer to the other places. Um, so, uh, two jars of CeraVe. You write medicated on the one that, you, that has the clebatazole in it. The other one's just a regular jar. Those are the only two topicals they should ever put on their skin again for the rest of their life. Regular and medicated. I, the re, one of the reasons for this, I have everybody bring in all of their medications when I see them for patch testing. And so they'll bring in their six tubes of topical steroid. So I go through each tube with them just because I'm always curious. So you know, okay, what do you do with this one? And I'll hold up, you know, the desimide. Oh, that one's really strong. That one just goes on my elbows and knees and my back. And then you okay, what do you do with this one? And it's the clobetasol. Oh, that's the really safe one. I'm using that on my eyelids. They just have no clue what's supposed to be going where, and no rhyme or reason as well. They'll be, well, when I first break out, I use that one, and then if I don't get better, I switch to this one, and then, you know, if it's July, I'll use that one. Like, they just, so you gotta make it really simple. So two jars, medicated, non-medicated. If you've got a rash, you put the medicated on. If you don't have a rash, you put the regular on. All right, so optimizing showers. I like them to shower at least twice a day and apply physiologic lipid right after. You've got to remove the chlorine from the water. They now make a much nicer one than this. They're called Sprite shower heads, is the one that you want, S-P-R-I-T-E, Sprite. They have them at Home Depot and at Lowe's. Uh, they cost about 20 bucks, and you've got to replace the filter in it about every six months, which costs about uh, $10. So very cheap, and it does make a significant difference to, when you take the chlorine out of the water. Detergent, I like them to use all free clear. I like them to avoid high efficiency washers. Uh, or if they use them, they have to double rinse because these do not rinse out as well. Um, surfactant blends, so this is what makes all free clear unique um, is that it, you know, there are a lot of products that don't have dyes or perfumes. They actually have a blend of surfactants that is very low irritancy, so that when you do get residual detergent in the clothing, and it also rinses out better than other detergents. But if you do get residual detergent, it's not irritating. And so in terms of rinse out, this was a a study where they they washed a load five times, washed it, rinsed it, dried it, washed it, rinsed it, dried it, washed it, rinsed it five times, and then they put it in the machine without any detergent. So after they washed and dried it five times, put it in, no detergent, just the dried clothes. And with the All Free Clear, because it rinses out better, very little sudsing here, but the other brand uh, had a lot more retained detergent, enough so that it looked like they had actually put detergent in. And then this is the other cool thing with laundry. So now a lot of products will keep a smell for for weeks. And it's because they have these tiny little balls that are um, little plastic balls that whenever they're wet, they're very flexible. But then whenever they dry and then they get in between the threads, each of these balls has a little bit of fragrance inside of it. Then once they dry, they get very stiff. And whenever you move around, they crack and release the fragrance, and so they smell good. But as long as it's sitting in your drawer and it's not moving, the shells stay intact so the fragrance doesn't evaporate away. So, sleep is critical. We talked about this yesterday. Vitamins work. Vitamin D and E in combination are are really effective. Um, 4,000 units a day of vitamin D, 1,000 units a day of vitamin E. Again, patients love that because it's very natural and safe. Um, I discussed stress making it worse. Uh, So, then the that's all general stuff for atopics. the specific types when it's mainly biceps down and neck up um, you know again neck up this these people are airborne pattern and so these are proteases dust mites cockroach ragweed all of the common allergens they break down the protein in the stratum corneum and they activate the protease activated receptor which directly causes itch these are, are in men it's this inverse t-shirt in women it tends to more be just the just the face and especially this area right here right under your nose um, is really hard to treat Mite avoidance does help so mattress and pillowcase covers they got a vacuum every week in their in their bedroom and they got to re- remove proteins from the skin I try to ha- help them uh, wash or rinse very frequently next pattern is sort of upper chest up so from a chromium process to a chromium process Uh, That was him on lidex twice a day. This is this woman on trimcinolone to her face twice a day. This is her uh, after being treated appropriately. Uh, This kid using clobetazole twice a day. This is him six weeks later off the steroids. These people have become allergic to malassezia, and you treat them with either itraconazole or ketoconazole. And then finally staph-driven disease. And so the big things here, any atopic dermatitis that's kind of moist or atopic dermatitis that is uh, crusty or fissured so any degree of that makes you think staph um, the big things with staph antibiotics at least a month I like cephalexin doxycycline or Bactrim uh, and I'm sorry I'm going so fast but I'm just about out of time so rifampin. Ref- I'll add the first week that's a very good decolonizer uh, these people almost never have MRSA um, and so that's why I, I usually use cephalexin atopics don't get MRSA non-atopics almost always get MRSA atopics don't uh, and there's a good rationale for that. It's, it's that in atopics, strains that produce super antigens are selected for and everybody else strains that are resistant to antibiotics get selected for. So like dial antibacterial moisturizing body wash. Speaking of bacteria, don't ever tell any, t- I know bleach baths are very popular, do not ever tell an topic to get a bleach bath. Okay? It's, it's one of the worst things you could possibly do for them. And so the reason is that they believe it's going to burn like crazy. Okay? Oh, I have all my patients do this. None of them complain about burning. In their mind, oh, this person doesn't know me. If I get in that, if I add some bleach to the bathwater, that is going to burn like crazy. I just, I can't do that. There's no way. And you know, plus, it's it's too long. It's too. I can't get a bath at night. I don't have 15 minutes. By the time I get home from work, make dinner, get my kids in bed, I'm exhausted. I can't get a bath for 15 minutes. That's ludicrous. All right, right? I don't have time. This person just, they don't. I can't come back here. Right? Instead, you say, I want you to get in a swimming pool twice a week because the chlorine in the swimming pool water kills the bacteria on your skin. Right? Doesn't your eczema usually get better in the summer? Oh yeah, I guess it does. Don't you go swimming in the summer? Yeah, I guess I do. It's not the swimming, it's the sun. But still, they don't know that. It's right? the swimming pool makes me get better, OK. That's, and to which they say, well, OK, I guess I belong to the pool in the summer, and I, I guess I can join the Y um, to get there a couple of times a week. That, I suppose, makes sense. But now you've reframed it, right? They know swimming pools don't sting. Jordan the Y is expensive and really inconvenient. So now's whenever you move in, right? So now that I'm join the Y, and I guess I can do whatever. Oh, that sounds like it's going to be really difficult. You know what? You could do instead. You can make swimming pool water at home. Like, how can I do that? You can make it at home. Wow. I, that's amazing. Just add a little bit of bleach to the bath water, quarter cup. Um, 15 minutes, you know, twice a week. Wow, that's so much easier than going to the Y. Uh, that's wow. Getting bass, that's a good idea. Thank you. That's. I'm going to start doing that right away. All right. And finally, don't forget, they got to use freshly laundered towels and sheets. Otherwise, they're just going to get the staff right back on their skin. Right. So, freshly laundered towels and sheets are, are a big deal. Um, and the, the last few, I'm, I'm out of time, so I'm just going to. They should be in your uh, handouts. Um, so.